Aucklanders wanting to buy a home are still struggling with housing shortages and high prices. The median price of homes selling in Auckland has reached a record $625,000, and the city remains tens of thousands of homes short. But there's a host of new ideas and policies which are beginning to bear fruit. This Radio New Zealand Insight asks, could this be the year that Auckland's housing market turns around? So welcome everybody. I'm Mark Fraser, the commercial manager here with Hobsonville Land Company. We're the, the lead developer for Hobsonville Point. And we've got a project here of 60 apartments and 60% of it's sold. So it's an occasion that a decade ago few would have thought possible. The launch of a four-storey apartment block, a half-hour drive from downtown Auckland. Despite being on the rural fringe, the apartment block in the Hobsonville Point development looks like something usually found in an inner-city suburb. Anna and her son have both bought apartments off the plan. Apartment living is very um, quite the in thing at the moment. It kind of suits our lifestyle, and um, our, uh, my son is also first time into the housing market, so he's very excited. I mean, when you have an apartment, you don't have your own piece of land. How does that work here? No, that's actually quite fine. We've had sections with land before. We're uh, looking forward to, uh, we have a little motor home and we like to have a place that we can get up and go very quickly from and not have to worry about anything, so it could suit us quite well. Work on the apartment block out here at Hobsonville Point is now in full swing following the mid-February launch. It's just one of the many signs that this year new ideas aimed at tackling the cost and shortage of housing in Auckland are becoming reality. I'm Todd Nile, and in this insight I'll be looking at some of those ideas and policies and also at headwinds that may slow the effort to build more and cheaper homes in Auckland. But first to that idea of apartments on the urban fringe. Mark Fraser is the commercial manager at the government-owned Hobsonville Land Company, which is turning the former Air Force base into a community of more than 3,000 homes. The 60 apartments here, and they range in pricing from 350 through to uh, just under 500. Um, so it's pretty hard buying a new home uh, in the Auckland market under under 500, actually. Um, we, we are doing some here within Hobsonville Point with a 20% access series is there, a, is there an affordable product? Still a great quality house, it's just smaller. Um, and so we're targeting sub 485000 um, So people have that choice, an apartment is one of them. Just how attractive some of this year's new ideas are will be judged by those looking for a home to rent or buy in Auckland, the country's most expensive major housing market. 601, 500000 third and final time... That home didn't quite make what the Real Estate Institute says was last month's median selling price in Auckland, $625,000. That's up 10% on a year earlier, slightly more than the nationwide increase. Population growth, immigration, historically cheap finance and a slump in residential construction during the 2000s are some of the ingredients of Auckland's sharply rising housing costs. But for prospective first home buyers... One developer has a plan which he thinks will open the door to home ownership. It's a great place to live. And Mark Todd's development firm Ockham has made its reputation with well-designed apartments that include features like rooftop gardens, usually in the more fashionable parts of the city. But now he's talking about a new direction. We have a charitable foundation that has been established to support critical thought and scientific education. We have a medium-term plan to open a school funded by a, you know, a well-capitalised trust, much like the Dilworth Trust, and we have been 
trying to build that capital base for a number of years and it's quite a difficult thing to achieve. So we've come up with a new model that will at the same time provide um, families a more affordable way into home ownership but also raise significant funds for our charitable foundation over the course of the next 20 years. The charitable foundation will build its own development. Instead of making a profit, buyers will be offered an interest-free second mortgage. For argument's sake, let's just say a, a apartment a family might be interested in buying is worth $100. And they've saved a 10 or a $15 deposit, 10 or 15% deposit. If they combine that with our 15% second mortgage, which is interest-free, suddenly they'll have in the bank size a 25 or 30% deposit. So instead of borrowing 85 or $90 from the bank, they'll only be borrowing, you know, 65 or 70 There's a saving of, you know, between 15 and 20% on a weekly basis from that family's mortgage bill for up to 10 years. Mark Todd says the foundation's first project will be open to all buyers, but future developments would target buyers with lower incomes. He says it's a concept that could make a big difference in Auckland. And put it this way, our goal is to build a billion-dollar foundation over the next 20 years. So if you assume you know, the average profit on a house is $100,000, that means we're aiming to build 10,000 houses over the next 20 years, which is roughly speaking an average year, one year's of Auckland's housing supply. We're aiming to do that over 20 years. So the, the scope is this quantum and this, the potential for scale is quite significant. And we think if the model is successful, it could have a real effect on the supply side, which obviously is, is quite key to keeping prices in check. Another approach to helping first home buyers is being taken by Auckland's largest iwi, Ngāti Whātua. Narimu Blair is on the board of the iwi's commercial operation and says the $24 million plan is also about creating a stronger community on traditional land at Bastion Point in Oraki. So in 1950 there were no houses um, for our tribe, so everyone had scattered to the four winds, and now... We have a lot of people who are wanting to come and back and live amongst the community. Um, we have tribal land, uh, which is attractive in the sense that uh, you know it's not an open market. But they don't have to pay the uh, money for the land because we give licences to occupy. The licence to occupy is the key ingredient. Qualifying buyers will pay only for the house. The land remains with Ngāti Whātua. Nari Blair says the iwi will also provide guarantees for bank mortgages or help directly with finance. You know, now we've got a bit of financial clout. We will um, either be a guarantor or loan the money to our people themselves, um, which makes the finance available to build the house. But additionally, um, we'll also give a guarantee that we will buy the house after 10 years um, so that any equity that they've built up in it, they can take out and um, either downscale or upsize or move away if they if the tribal life wasn't for them. So after 10 years they have to sell or the option is there if they... The option's there and up to 10 years. So year 11 they're there for good. Nadi Blair says 330 families applied for the first stage of 30 homes expected to begin this year. He acknowledges there is some risk in backing people's loan repayments, but says the iwi selected buyers using the same criteria as a bank. Ngāti Whātua could build up to 700 homes in coming decades. But home ownership will remain out of reach for large numbers of Aucklanders. Housing New Zealand, a Crown agent for the government, is the largest single landlord in Auckland with 30,000 homes in the city. Many, though, are old and poorly insulated and sit on large sections that could be better used. 
The Minister of Housing, Nick Smith, says the agency's well into a programme of adding bedrooms onto existing houses and putting second dwellings onto larger sections. Uh, we are looking at Housing New Zealand this year making a record investment in Auckland in both new developments and the reconfiguring. The bigger role that Housing New Zealand can play is yet to become clear. Its large stock of traditional bungalows on sections provides a chance to redevelop with a much larger number of higher density homes, townhouses or apartments. Glenn Sowry is the first chief executive of Housing New Zealand to be based in Auckland. He says the redevelopment potential is already apparent. We did an example in Mount Roskill recently where we had uh, four units, total of eight bedrooms on two big sites and we've built a, um, a really nice uh, 22 unit um, three storey apartment uh, building in that on those sites. Um, and the quality of it was such that when it was being built, people were walking past asking if they, members of the public, asking if they could buy apartments in the block. And so that, uh, that property is designed for uh, senior living and folk with disability, and that's property I'm really proud of. Housing New Zealand says large-scale redevelopment won't occur while Auckland Council's unitary plan is finalised over the next three years. The plan is in draft form and sets the rules for higher-density housing in parts of the city. Glenn Sowry says it wouldn't make sense to draw up detailed designs only to have the rules changed. He says the agency currently plans to build nearly 1,400 new homes in Auckland by the end of next year. And also there's a limit to how fast we can, we can run and build. So we are being quite uh, purposeful at the moment about identifying one or two areas that we can work on and create these exemplars where people can look at them and say, oh, OK, I get it now, this actually works. And we can see that there are social housing tenants living alongside um, private um, property owners um, and that you start to create a more vibrant, healthy, mixed community, as is what's happened in the likes of the UK, Canada, Australia... So we're a bit behind uh, the eight ball on that, and I think that's a really exciting opportunity for us in the future. Mr Sowry says it could be two to three years before larger-scale redevelopment starts to happen, although some small projects could start in a year. The biggest canvas which Housing New Zealand has to work on is in Tamaki, including the eastern suburbs of Gleninus, Panmuir and Point England. Most of the 18,000 residents are Housing New Zealand tenants, and major redevelopment plans have been mulled over for years. Auckland Council and the government have formed a joint venture called the Tamaki Redevelopment Company, which is preparing its first regeneration project in the Fenchurch neighbourhood. The redevelopment company's chief executive, Deborah Lawson, says the agency's homes will be replaced. Additional homes may be created for other agencies or perhaps for private sale. I guess in many respects it's also a mini-regeneration project. You know, regeneration is pretty complex, it's very broad, but it helps us demonstrate in quite a small geography, comparatively, how we can um, deliver more than bricks and mortar, how we can take a, a neighbourhood, um, work with people, with the local community, get their input, help them influence and shape the plans to um, create a place that's got great housing, um, that's got great open spaces, where needs are addressed, such as early childhood education, and you can get local people involved in um, in developing those properties and being part of the construction as well, and working with local business too. So it's sort of a way for us to demonstrate what we can achieve on the ground, and pretty speedily, I have to say, as well.
The ability to move quickly in Fenchurch to build higher density housing has been made possible by its declaration as a special housing area. The so-called SHAs are created as part of the Housing Accord signed last year between the Government and Auckland Council. The Accord is the Government's flagship policy in dealing with Auckland's housing shortage and rising prices. The Accord allows the higher density rules of the unitary plan to be fast-tracked with limited rights of appeal by neighbours. It aims to help more than double the recent rate of home building in Auckland. The Minister of Housing, Nick Smith, believes building more homes will eventually ease price rises. I'm hugely encouraged by the progress that Auckland is making in meeting the housing supply gap. The initial reports I've had from my officials is that we are on target to meet those 9,000 homes in the first year of the Accord from October 13 through to 14. Uh, I'm also encouraged that those building consent numbers over the last six months show the most rapid increase or ramping up of house build at any time in more than a decade. The Housing Accord target is for consents for 9,000 new homes to be issued this year, rising to 17,000 in the third year. Even before the first SHAs get fully underway, the number of consents for new dwellings has lifted from below an annual rate of 5,000 to nearly 6,500. 22 areas have been agreed so far and are expected to deliver about 1,500 homes a year. 80 further possible special housing areas are still in the pipeline. As well as its role in encouraging more and better housing, Auckland Council is actively using land it owns in joint ventures with developers. The head of the council's property company, ACPL, David Rankin, says its first joint venture in the southern suburb of Papatoitoi has just begun construction. Essentially we're taking a large vacant car park site at the back of the town centre, an ex-depot site. We've got two providers um, taking development blocks in there. One is the New Zealand Housing Foundation, which is doing one of its affordable housing packages. Um, and then a bigger development with Infratil. And you're probably looking at um, overall with a third stage that'll come later, 130, 140 housing units going in, right there by the town centre. So a good boost for the town centre, right by a train station. Uh, absolutely good, great example of the type of thing we're here to do. The push for more housing has moved further than discussions about where and what sort of building, house or apartment. There's also a drive to rethink the size issue and how homes are built. In the rural northwestern town of Kumiu, a former board mill plant is now home to what Marsh Hudson hopes is the future of new house construction. So what's happening here, Todd, is this is a robotic saw run directly from the design office and managed by the operator. And the operator is effectively creating part numbers Marsh Hudson's e-home plant is a production line for houses. He doesn't use the word prefab because of its association with flimsy school classrooms. This is off-site manufacturing, or OSM. State-of-the-art German machines driven by computers can turn a pile of raw materials into a ready-to-assemble house in just 12 hours. This unit has timber components fed into it and they are nailed into a complete wall frame. Once the wall frame is complete, then this overhead crane places this very robust internal lining sheet onto the frame, and shortly we'll see the automatic stapler 
driven again once from the design office. What emerges is a house in kit-set form. The walls are complete from painted cladding through to painted internal linings. Windows are fitted and holes cut in the lining for electrical fittings. On the building site it can be assembled with the roof on in about 12 hours. Marsh Hudson says the advantages include higher and consistent quality and removing the uncertainties of weather from the building process. He says it also needs fewer qualified builders than normal construction. There is a shortage of qualified licensed building practitioners putting up houses in the field. And unfortunately what happens is that less qualified or unqualified people start building houses. At the moment we are able to address uh, that issue by having a very limited number of key practitioners in key roles supervising uh, skilled trainees and support staff. Factory built homes are common in the United States and Germany. E-Home is one of the first to set up in this country but others are following. It's like a car assembly line and needs high volumes to work. E-Home is building minimum orders of 50 for housing agencies but also for a private developer. At present it's only slightly cheaper than traditional building but with increasing scale and time Marsh Hudson says that will change. I would say in 10 years time would be uh, something like 80%. Really that big a change? I do because with that amount of time manufacturing costs will decline and uh, skilled labour on site will increase so that our proposition will become more and more attractive um, and so certainly that's the case in Germany um, where there are very very few hand-built uh, timber frame houses. We've adopted that model precisely so it's not a revolutionary concept it's a, an adaption of a proven concept to the New Zealand environment and uh, every manufactured product always becomes cheaper, every hand-built product always becomes more expensive. The skill shortage that Marsh Hudson says may favour factory-built homes is already being felt. Matt Lagerberg is a director of Classic Builders. Well, at the moment you can sort of see there is enough uh, trades around at the moment, but what we are seeing is that the lag is starting to uh, take a bit longer to build houses because obviously sub-trades are starting to get over-committed. They're still rapidly trying to find some resources to be able to achieve it, but you can sort of see that the, the length of, of construction timeframes is starting to pull out. Uh, which is indicating to me that there is starting to definitely be the shortage of, of um, you know, sub-trades. The biggest trainer is Auckland's Unitech, which teaches almost 5,000 people a year in the building trades. The executive dean at the Faculty of Technology and Built Environment, Graham Hodge, says there is talk of skill shortages, but no alarm bells are ringing. We're working with industry and with wider government just to try and get a better forward picture of how this looks and align the demand and supply much better. Uh, and we're also working to restructure the programs that we deliver so that can be delivered faster in smaller blocks. Um, this, this is much better suited to what industry actually needs, so you get the skills that you actually need on the job much faster. And we're looking uh, to have work-integrated learning programs and, and much closer linkages between the training programs and what industry actually requires. To say, this is three houses on less than half a quarter acre set. Since I'm back at Hobsonville Point with architect Chris Kelly for what's being billed as a test laboratory for small standalone home designs. The smallest is a one-bedroom of 40 square metres, which developers say could be priced under $300,000. It stands on just 111 metres of land. We're looking at the three-bedroom, all 90 square metres of it, with a price tag of $485,000. 
Fellow designer David Irwin says the only thing being skimped on is size. You could have a barbecue, you can sit outside and you can bring some friends around. So even though we've got a small space, we've still got four chairs on a hard surface here. We've got a vegetable garden. We've got outlook from the master bedroom. We've got connections straight through from the um, dining room, which is linked to the kitchen and to the lounge. So the indoor-outdoor, you know, is the flow in inverted commas, is working really well on these properties. And outside of this, we've taken away, which is placed on the other side, away from our actual living space, a worm farm, a clothesline, hot water cylinder and a rainwater tank, all of which are on every one of these houses, or in a shed with six cubic metres of storage. So all of that's still here, it's just we've carefully placed it around the other side. The homes have features such as double glazing, a special heat-retaining concrete floor and quality fittings. You know, it wasn't that long ago then we were building a state house at at 80 squares and 100 squares. You know, we've only in the last 20 to 30 years all of a sudden decided to have this appetite for these massive homes. We're at 200 square metres for on average, and over 200 square metres. We're the second largest house size builder in the world. And here we are just sort of bringing, I, I just see us as dialling back a little bit of history here. So it, it is about a bit of, I totally agree with what Chris is saying, it's, it is about learning again to live how we were. The three small homes at Hobsonville Point will be used to test public reaction over the next six months. And you've got either a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom module with a bed with a bathroom that you can fit to the side. An increasingly important sector in providing social housing and assistance to first-home buyers is the community housing sector. These are charitable organisations, and both the government and Auckland Council envisage them being bigger players in the city's housing market. But it's a sector facing new challenges. In Auckland, one is the last-minute change to the council's draft unitary plan, which significantly reduced the area for high-density housing in urban areas. Peter Jeffries chairs the Community Housing Provider Network in Auckland and is the chief executive of the Community of Refuge Trust. He says the cost of housing will be pushed up by the requirement to have at least 200 square metres of land for each dwelling. Well, that's just too much. If you're trying to build a one-bedroom flat that, uh, that takes 50 square metres or even a two-bedroom that takes 65 metres, why do you need 200 square metres when the, you know, the average price of land is $1,000 per square metre? And when we build them in, in medium density, we build two-storey, um, so we've got two one-bedroom uh, units, one on top of the other. They still only require 50 square metres, but the council is now saying that you, you need two times 200, so you need 400 square metres. There's just no sense in what they're demanding if we really want to address the affordability issues in Auckland. Peter Jeffrey says government funding for the sector is also uncertain after agencies used up a three-year budget for social housing in just two years. It was oversubscribed, we were encouraged to spend it and we did, we've spent it in the two years and we come up to this year, election year, and the government's turned around and said, hey, there is no more money. So right now uh, we're finishing off the houses that uh, we've committed to, but next year uh, there doesn't appear to be any more funding, uh, the Minister hasn't indicated that there will be more funding, and so we're about to run down again, which is very disappointing when it comes down to long-term growth of the community housing sector. A spokesperson for the Minister of Housing says work is still being done on the issue. They wouldn't comment on whether the answer may come in the budget in May. In the meantime, Peter Jeffrey says agencies can't take on new projects beyond those already funded. A possible headwind facing efforts to build more homes is rising interest rates. 
but the chief economist at Westpac Bank, Dominic Stevens, doesn't think that will cause a slowdown in home construction. At the very margin, a push to build more houses eventually in time will be a negative force for house prices, but it'll take a very long time. And indeed, if you triple the rate of house building, what you do is generate more economic confidence, which creates the risk of more house price inflation in the short run. No, I I think the the key driver of the housing market over the course of the next year will be rising interest rates. It will change affordability decisions and it will cause the housing market to slow this year. So we experienced 10% house price inflation nationwide in 2013. Our forecast is 6.5% for 2014, uh, 1% for 2015 and negative 2 for 2016 uh, as the housing market is gradually squeezed by rising interest rates. The other financial squeeze is coming from the Reserve Bank's decision last year to limit the proportion of mortgage lending to those with less than a 20% deposit. Those borrowers, considered to be mainly first home buyers, can now make up only 10% of a bank's new mortgage lending. The Reserve Bank's move was aimed to ensure stability in the banking sector by slowing house price inflation. The bank's governor, Graham Wheeler, won't say how long the temporary lending restriction will last, but believes it is working. We did some work the other day which was modelling the effect of what, say, banks continued to lend uh, 25 to 30% of their loans to people with low deposits. Um, In other words, what would have happened if we had not introduced the LV ratios? And we think national uh, house price inflation would have been around 2.5% higher. It's hoped that new ideas taking hold this year will make a difference to many of the people buying new homes in Auckland. But how much difference will they make to the existing half-million dwellings that make up the bulk of the region's housing market? The Professor of Property at the University of Auckland's Business School, Larry Murphy, says the current housing market is complex and is now looked on as an escalator to greater wealth. We have created this set of forces, uh, socially, politically and culturally, that is very hard to slow down. And so at this stage, I think most of policies would be tinkering, is probably too harsh a word, but they are trying to modify the speed of of growth in, in house prices but it's very difficult as a juggernaut that's traveling along and there are lots of processes promoting it including population growth income growth people trading up in the markets a whole set of processes people's expectations drive their willingness to take on more debt etc larry murphy says the initiatives to make housing more affordable by boosting supply will be outweighed by more powerful financial and economic forces i think we could end up with a spurious correlation that either yes they did reduce prices or no they didn't Um, but in reality the prices were driven by bigger factors so i think we need to look at these these particular developments and say you know what was the outcome look at them as as entities in themselves and say yes they produce good outcomes and we can measure those outcomes but i think we'd probably be a little less we have to be a bit more cautious about whether they whether they're capable of addressing the bigger problem of house prices across the board 2014 is likely to produce the biggest single shift in auckland's housing market since the slump brought on by the global financial crisis Whether the end result of the various forces at play will be easier access to affordable housing remains a moot point. I'm Todd Nile and that's Insight for this week. 
If you would like to contact us, you can send us an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.